Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Christina Millar, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Baptiste Brossard about his book, Forgetting Items, The Social Experience of Alzheimer's Disease, published in 2019 in English by the Indiana University Press. Dr. Baptiste Brossard received his PhD in sociology at the School for Advanced Studies in the Social Sciences in 2011. His primary areas of research are mental health, sociological theory, qualitative methods, and utopian studies. He is currently a lecturer in the College of Arts and Social Sciences at Australian National University. Baptiste, welcome to the show. Hello. I wonder if you'd begin the interview by just saying a few more words about yourself. Okay, so... uh, I, I think you said already quite a, a few things. So I, I grew up uh, in France where I did my, my studies uh, in sociology, but also uh, in anthropology and a little bit in history. Uh, then I lived for two years in Montreal, Canada, and then I moved uh, since three years and a half uh, to Australia uh, for being a lecturer at the ANU, as you said. Um so uh, I guess this uh, project I will talk about, uh, it, it's a project that I realized when I was, uh, so it was just after my PhD uh, dissertation when I was first in France and then when I moved to, uh, to Canada. So it, it, it's a work I did between these two countries. Um, I, I think that's all I can say for now. Yeah, sure. So how did you um, become inspired to write this book and how did you begin this project? Uh, It was actually a suggestion by uh, my uh, former PhD supervisor uh, uh, with name Florence Weber. And uh, after after I finished my dissertation on self-injury, where I addressed uh, mental health-related issues uh, in youth, she told me that, uh, you know, Alzheimer's was becoming a, a, a big problem uh, and a, a big public health issue. And that it would be interesting that I uh, kind of try to, to change my, the public of my research, you know, uh, from mental health in youth to mental health in the elderly. Um, and so uh, after, after that, I started working uh, on uh, Alzheimer's and dementia more generally, and I got into it for, for five years. Can you tell us a bit about the method you use to conduct this study? <clears throat> yes, of course. So uh, my goal uh, was to follow um, a sort of ethnographic method, uh, meaning trying to understand uh, the experience of Alzheimer's disease uh, in various settings, um, in uh, uh, how it uh, impacts 
uh, interactions. And uh, I said the sort of ethnographic method because um, I think that to have a, um, a, a comprehensive picture of wh what it means to have Alzheimer's disease or, or suffer from a dementia, uh, we have to look at several places and it starts uh, with medical consultations, but uh, there are also changes in the everyday life at home. Uh, then a lot of people at some point of their trajectory, they uh, end up being in a nursing home. Uh, so uh, I try to have to multiply my perspective. So I did uh, observations of medical consultations, uh, especially memory consultations, uh, which are specific consultations where patients come to be eventually diagnosed with um, a, a form of dementia. I did interviews with patients, uh, interviews with relatives, interviews with health professionals, um, doctors and nursing aides working in nursing homes. And I um, also did uh, some observations in a nursing home. So both of the public uh, spaces in nursing homes or uh, of more specific uh, parts of the institutional life, such as um, uh, the work of executives, for instance, or uh, here again in nursing homes, I did interviews with patients. So uh, it, it was a very mul multiple method, so to speak, uh, as I tried to, to, to as as many different types of data as I could. Yeah. Was it difficult to gain access to those spaces? Um, because I know that, you know, with vulnerable populations, it can be harder to gain access to do research. So how did you gain access to talking to those patients? Um, so um, th th there is two layers of answer. Um, first, there is ethics, uh, university ethics. Um, so in France, we don't have... Um, uh, uh, I, I think in the US we say ARB. We don't have ARB. Yes. Uh, so we, can, okay. we, we, we can do research as we want. Um, and uh, when I arrived to Canada, I had to do my first ethics application and it was quite tough and I had to take six months to, to, to get approval uh, to, to study uh, uh, yes, vulnerable people and try to uh, formalize uh, a bit more uh, how I would, you know, like preserve consent and all these things with a, a consent form and, you know, all, the, all these things that, that people do in, in North America, uh, uh, w which is more or less relevant with people depending on their, you know, stage of the disease. But anyway, so I, I didn't have this difficulty in France when I started working on, on Alzheimer's. Um, then I had some, it was quite easy actually to, to um, um, make observations of consultation. There were a lot of doctors that were very uh, uh, welcoming and very intrigued by what a sociologist could do. Um, and also because maybe we'll talk about this, because they, they have this feeling that their work is not um, a typical uh, scientific work in the sense that their impressions, their subjectivity is very important to diagnose uh, Alzheimer's disease and, and uh, related dementias. Um, maybe my, my, my main difficulty was to gain access to nursing homes uh, because when I started wanting to do uh, fieldwork in nursing homes, 
they were a sort of wave of scandals in France uh, regarding abuses. Uh, so it was about, you know, like nursing aides abusing residents, etc. So um, m- most nursing homes I contacted, uh, so I had to talk to their director and, and they were very suspicious uh, and they thought that I uh, would be a, a journalist undercover. Um, so uh, interestingly, the nursing home that accepted me to be uh, to, to, to do field work, they were kind of, you know, like the, the kind of top of nursing homes, you know, with very good installations, with very good facilities, uh, with uh, financial means. They were a sort of facade for their company because it was a private nursing home. Uh, and I had to be checked by their communication services first. Uh, so that they check if I was a real researcher, you know, that a real, uh, I, I was uh, writing real publications uh, and that my perspective would not, you know, compromise their uh, their image, their public image. So uh, hopefully I had not uh, triggered any scandal before that. Uh, but so, so, so yes, about nursing homes, it was, it was hard. Um, and, um, because it's a sensitive uh, milieu, you know, they, with, with all these scandals and all, all these difficulties they have, uh, adding some people with a very vague role, which is the role of an ethnographer, is not making them very comfortable. Right, right. Yeah. So we can go ahead and jump right into the content of the book. Um, I really enjoyed this book. In the beginning, you talk about the concept of a potential patient. Can you tell us more about what you mean by that? So um, it means that um, there is a, um, a a lot of things happening regarding uh, cognition, dementia, and, and aging that are all uh, intertwined, but let's say that uh, when people get uh, old, so subjectively old, uh, they are often uh, suspected of having some uh, cognitive loss, and sometimes they have. Um, and dementia, the, the symptomatology of dementia is uh, a sort of amplification of these losses. So it means that um, people, aging people who are, let's say, having small sign of uh, memory loss, disorientations, uh, they, they, they tend to be suspected uh, even very naively by their relatives and by their doctors, for instance, of, you know, either losing their mind, into quote, or having dementia. So... Um, uh, I, I think I use the notion of potential patient in in the book to to talk about this gray area, you know, and the fact that at some, at some point people are sus- are potential patients. You know, they are constantly suspected of having troubles, and this is all the more uh, relevant that the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease and any type of dementia is always very uncertain. Uh, even from a medical perspective. So, for instance, for Alzheimer's disease, the only certainty we can have is uh, with post-mortem exams. So it's impossible to know when someone is alive. It's impossible to know 100% if they have Alzheimer's. It's a very complicated uh, disease from a medical perspective. So uh, even when people are 
uh, diagnose, there is always this margin of uncertainty. So people are always more or less potential patients in this area. Oh, wow. I didn't know that you couldn't diagnose um, like an, or you couldn't really find out unless um, you look at them post-mortem. That's interesting. Um, yeah. So you also note that one of the hardest things for people after they're diagnosed with Alzheimer's is a loss of credibility. Um, so what are giving credit and discrediting look like in interaction or practice? And why is that important to, to patients or people? So it is very important because our everyday uh, interactions rely on the uh, assumption that we are telling the truth uh, or that what we are telling is uh, reflective of our personality. Okay, when I just said, uh, I don't know, I did field work in nursing homes, you believe me, I hope. Or, or yeah. if, I say, <laughs> if I say, I... Uh, um, I don't know, I like uh, music, you, tr you trust it's a part of my personality. But with um, um, this kind of uh, symptomatologies, uh, uh, Alzheimer's and other dementias, uh, and it's the same with mental health, it often implies that what people say and do uh, are not considered to be uh, credible. It means that uh, what they say is considered to be potentially the reflect of a distorted view on reality uh, or a sort of confusion, uh, a general confusion. Um, and so the um, moments that are very important in terms of credibility, and it's where I, I really realized uh, this issue, is during... Uh, consultations where patients are diagnosed because um, so uh, a patient go to see a, a doctor to, 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 to see if they are okay. Uh, they have some tests, uh, sometimes some MRI to show, sometimes some blood tests. Um, they, they pass some neuropsychological tests, uh, but one of the main aspects of the diagnosis is to um, understand the symptoms as they are told by the patient and by their relative. So when a patient um, say, oh, I have no problem with my memory, I remember everything, okay, it seems to be a, a, a clue that this patient uh, doesn't have you know, Alzheimer's disease, but if they have Alzheimer's, they wouldn't know, so they would say the same. Uh, so it means that doctors, they have to try to assess whether patients are credible or not. Uh, and often to do so, they are paralleling what patients say with what their relatives say. So if the patients say, oh, I never forget anything, and they come with their spouse or with their son or daughter, and the daughter say, yes, you forget things every day, so then there is a loss of credibility. And at some point, when uh, either when there is a, a diag diagnosis or when people are at a certain stage of the disease, uh, they completely lost credibility. It means that they're uh, the professionals around them, but also their relatives. So it depends on, on what is the posture of each person in the network of the, of the patient. Uh, they don't believe what they say. So uh, patients can say anything. Um, 
and they are not believed. And this is terrible because one of the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease is what is called anosognosia. Um, and it is precisely the fact of not realizing that you have symptoms. So at this stage, when a patient say, oh, I feel well, I don't have any, any problem, this can be a symptom. Um, so uh, w what I raise with this question of credibility is that uh, um, Alzheimer's disease has very deep repercussions in uh, interactions and, and more in you know how people are experiencing their life through interactions because it is disrupting a, a very fundamental assumption of, of our everyday life, which is you know people are believable and what what they say is reflective of what they are. Sure, sure. Yeah. So you talk about repairing exchanges. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes. So um, repairing exchange, it's a um, it's a sort of reconceptualization of what people generally name uh, care. Uh, why do I talk about repairing exchange? It's because my overall uh, project for this book is to understand uh, Alzheimer's through uh, uh, interactions. You know, like like I, I don't I don't try to um, take the symptoms. You know, there are a lot of books about Alzheimer's that you know give the symptoms for its its stage. Its stage sorry. I, I rather try to understand what it changes in interaction and how these symptoms are uh, constructed through interactions. And so I start with a concept. I work with concepts that are um, depicting um, general, usual interactions. Like I said before, with credibility, you know, credibility is an assumption of most interactions. Uh, and it's the same with repairing exchanges. It's a concept that I took from Goffman, Irving Goffman, who is the, the main influence in that book. And um, Goffman calls re repairing exchange all what we do to avoid someone to be embarrassed. Uh, so in Goffman's view of interactions, uh, basically to say this very quickly, there are so many uh, norms to follow uh, and so many things intervening in, in an interaction that it happens very often that someone is embarrassed, meaning that they don't know how to behave, they uh, make a blunder, they are, yes, embarrassed. I think it's, it's, a, it's a very good word. And so when someone is embarrassed, you can uh, try to repair the interaction uh, in several ways. Uh, for instance, you can ignore uh, what just happened. Um, I don't know when someone makes a joke and it's not funny, like nobody uh, notice and you know you keep conversing or you can um, have uh, an attitude of you know uh, making this person feel like it's not it's not so so serious you know you can say okay, it's okay, your joke is not so funny, but uh, it happens. Uh, so there, there are many strategies to repair the interaction. and I think that, um, from the moment someone is uh, suspected of uh, suffering from Alzheimer's disease or diagnosed with uh, this disease, progressively uh, their interactions are revolving around repairing exchanges because um, dementias 
uh, imply a lot of what we call uh, weird behaviors. And so people are more and more around the patients trying to repair these behaviors and try to make uh, uh, the patient to, uh, to, to preserve his life or her life um, without suffering too much from the consequences of these uh, behaviors. Um, so by repairing it changes, it, it can be just, um, I don't know, make sure that uh, the, the, the person is not uh, disoriented uh, or trying to uh, accompany them uh, to the supermarket and progressively uh, these repairing exchanges are taking more and more room in the lives of the patient. And this is my point because uh, at some point of the disease, um, I think that patients are experiencing interactions only through uh, the necessity of repairing exchanges. Uh, it means that people around them are only interacting with them to help them, to care for them, which is great, but it's reductive in terms of uh, social identity. Uh, sure, sure. So you conduct at least part of this research in the memory care facilities and nursing homes. What were these facilities like for um, for residents? It's um, So what, what I could observe is a... Uh, a great uh, variation. So you're talking about nursing homes, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I, I think that there are a lot of differences. I, I really saw uh, some places that really look like, you know, the image you have of, uh, I don't know, 19th century Islands uh, with, you know, people uh, crying everywhere and stuff like that. And some very cutting edge facilities where uh, there is only like uh, 15 residents and everything is, you know, set up in such a way that a patient can have a, a decent life. So, uh, I, I mean, the, the, the contrast between uh, facilities is, uh, is really uh, uh, striking. Um, which is, I, I mean, and, it, and it's all, um, maybe I, I didn't talk about that enough uh, in my book because I, I know that one of the main concerns uh, in aged care is uh, money, you know, is that they don't have enough money to have enough uh, professionals and enough well-paid professionals uh, and enough good facilities and uh, the price is too high for, for uh, residents. Uh, and we, which is all related to uh, abuses. You know, there is a lot of scandals about um, uh, abuses in nursing homes. Uh, and often, I think the media, they are kind of putting emphasis on the moral character of uh, the professionals, you know, saying, oh, they are bad people because they abuse all people. But actually, uh, at first, we need, you know, to, to, to give them good conditions uh, of, of work and, uh, you know, so that people don't, don't get, you know, in, in, in uh, very uh, tough circumstances in, in these facilities. Um, and I think I, I, I didn't um, mention the issue of money too much because I think it's kind of an, of an obvious uh, thing, you know, that we don't have to discuss too much. You know, we need more money in, in nursing homes uh, to have the basic things like 
uh, well-paid professionals, uh, buildings that are looking uh, correct, a decent situation for the rooms and, and stuff like that. Um, then um, the, uh, the the problem that I rather raised was more about this uh, fundamental uh, difficulty for professionals to behave with patients. And uh, no matter what is the uh, financial uh, situation, uh, the thing is that we don't know how to do to behave with uh, residents. And so this was a, a, a common thing, um, no matter the, the institution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so tell me more about the providers who care for patients in the nursing homes. Um, so what were the caregiving networks of the patients? So the caregiving network is uh, generally composed of both or either members of family and um, professional. Um, And uh, the um, this network is uh, very strongly evolving um, along with the disease. I think that uh, Alzheimer's disease is uh, a a very total disease in terms of uh, social relations. You know, it completely restructured the uh, network of acquaintances of of people. So it means that people, from the moment they are ill, they can't do as much activities as before. So they can maybe lose friends, uh, some some family members that can't take care of them, for instance. And uh, prof- uh, progressively, there are more and more uh, professional caregivers around them. Um, so th- this is this is a, a f- first thing: the the difficulty to 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 restructure one's network of acquaintances, and um, the second difficulty uh, is related to the conflicts uh, that can occur uh, in caregiving networks, um, conflicts or disagreements, um, in the sense that there are often disagreements regarding who should take care of what, uh, typically among family members. And uh, these conflicts are attached to difficulties to find uh, professionals, especially uh, when uh, patients are leaving home and they, when they start uh, needing some professional to come home, some home uh, nurses or house cleaning and this kind of thing, these services sometimes they are very hard to find. Uh, and it can be a, a financial issue. So who's paying for, for that when the, the, the patient is not rich? You know, it's, it's a question. And who is uh, coming every day to the house of the patient to check if everything is okay? Who is... Uh, coming to help them make food, so it's a very uh, it's a very striking thing too in the network of of, of caregiving that um, if uh, ideally everybody agree that you know we uh, if you have a, a, let's say a grandfather or a grandmother that is sick you will take care of them, but but then when it really happens. There is a lot of very practical issues that make it very difficult to live. And this is typically why some uh, families ultimately uh, agree to 
place their relative in, in a nursing home is because you know they, they can't deal with it anymore. Uh, and so when uh, patients are put in nursing home, uh, then they can still have visits from their family, but their main uh, their main uh, source of relations uh, is uh, professionals working in this uh, facility. Um, this is this is why if I can just uh, uh, <laughs> add on my precedent uh, on my previous answer, uh, this this is why it's important to to have uh, professionals in nursing homes who have. Uh, time, you know, not only uh, time to to uh, to give shower and to give food, but also a little bit of time to chat, uh, because it's very sought after by residents since it's almost their own source of relation. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, how about family caregivers? What role does family caregiving play um, in the lives of these uh, patients? Uh, a, a very uh, important uh, role. <laughs> um, I think the um, um, I, I I think one of the um, I, I think that so obviously it's a very hard time for for family. Um, before I talked about the practical aspect of it, but there is also uh, the social and relational aspect of uh, the disease, which is that patients are, uh, as we say, commonly losing their minds, meaning that they become a different person. Um, and so um, I, I think the family relations are very deeply reconfigured uh, because uh, in addition to change their everyday life, uh, family members have to deal with uh, an almost new person in front of them, a person that sometimes, uh, I know, forget some important things, uh, forget some birthdays, uh, and at an advanced stage, forget some, some faces, uh, it's possible, or sometimes find themselves uh, disoriented uh, in their own house, um, all these these very important things, um, and um, so I, I I I think they have to really adjust to this uh, situation, and it creates a lot of, of tension. Um, we have an expression in uh, uh, in French that I don't think exists in English, uh, which is the the white morning, uh, the fact of mourning uh, for someone who is still alive. So we say white morning. And I think it's a very uh, good one because it, I, I think it's what can happen uh, at the advanced stage of the disease for family members. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then I also, I really like this concept that you bring up in the book of deference. So what is the role of deference in caring for individuals with Alzheimer's and why is this so important in their, um, in their lives? So... Um, here again, I started with Goffman's uh, depiction of common everyday life, and I tried to understand what changes with uh, Alzheimer. So difference uh, is a dimension of uh, mundane interactions uh, through which interlocutors are conveying um, the 
status they give to their interactant. Um, so it's the way in which you show appreciation more generally. So um, for, for instance, when you call your doctor or doctor, you are signifying that you are respecting this, this role. This is a kind of a typical, uh, uh, not very uh, original example. Um, so difference uh, changes along with the disease and this is very uh, a very important uh, part of the disease for me from sociological uh, perspective because I observed that people interacting with uh, patients are trying to insist on uh, this uh, difference and uh, because with the elderly suffering from dementia, difference uh, is becoming a moral issue. Behaving well with someone who is uh, suffering from Alzheimer's disease is a moral issue. And this is uh, something that is different from the, uh, let's say, common everyday life. Uh, if, you are not, if you are not showing a difference to your doctor, for instance, uh, it's not a matter of morality. It's a matter that you are rude. You know, it's what people think in general. Uh, whereas um, with uh, older people uh, in this kind of situations of suffering from, from dementia, it becomes a moral issue. Uh, you are a bad person if you behave badly with, uh, with uh, an old person. And um, when people are uh, living in nursing homes, it becomes an institutional issue, meaning that uh, the signs of difference um, that are generally uh, supposed to be spontaneous, they are suddenly formalized by the institution who tells professional some basic uh, uh, rules about how to behave with the patients. And these rules are very important because they are rules about morality. So uh, it can be, to take a very simple example, how to call uh, the patients. You know, do, do you call them with their family name or with their first names? Um, well, many uh, patients prefer to be called by their first names because they are living in the nursing home, so they want to feel a bit more, you know, casual. But many uh, institutional guidelines are ordering their uh, professionals to call them with their family name. Uh, to show more difference, to show that they are more respected, more important. Um, so, um, I so what I observed is that with uh, Alzheimer's disease and any other form of dementia, uh, the uh, difference that is expressed for interaction is changing. Uh, it's becoming a moral issue and uh, institutionalized, especially in in nursing homes. Mm, yeah. So tell us more about the change in the social role that people that were diagnosed with Alzheimer's experience. So how did their role in society change? So uh, it, it is a very complex uh, uh, change. So, so far we have talked about uh, some, some important uh, dimensions of this role. Uh, difference just before um, uh, the, the loss of credibility, the multiplication of uh, repairing exchanges. Um, 
So this role, um, to, to generalize a little bit, uh, is uh, a role of, of progressive, um, progressive, uh, let's say, difficulty in interactions, uh, in the sense that um, a lot of um, uh, ways of behaving that we are having quite spontaneously uh, are not obvious uh, with uh, uh, people suffering from Alzheimer's. And so there, there, there are a lot of, of changes in interactions uh, that, that, that occur and that shape this, this role. Uh, I, at some point of the book, I'm kind of describing some of these uh, changing in the way of, of in the way uh, I saw people behaving with patients. Uh, which includes, for instance, um, the, the the way of talking. Um, I, I know in, in in English there is this very interesting expression of a secondary baby talk uh, to talk mm-hmm. uh, to 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 old people, also with a higher voice, uh, uh, using different words, repeating the name of the patient, uh, all these all these things. And um, I, I I think all these. Uh, behavioral changes are building the, the role of um, someone suffering from uh, Alzheimer's uh, disease, uh, which is uh, a kind of stereotypes, uh, a kind of stereotype that, that start to exist about, uh, about people uh, suffering with, uh, with dementia and, and which implies a, a set of standardized behavior. Uh, typically with this secondary baby talk, you know, uh, a, a set of, of, of behaviors that are, um, that are kind of uh, automatically uh, triggered by the uh, knowledge that someone is suffering from dementia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then can you also, you also bring up this, um, this other term towards the end of the book called reconstitution. Can you describe what it means to go through reconstitution? Yes, that's very very good that you mentioned that because it's the fourth uh, the dimension I, I, I raised. So after mm-hmm. uh, repairing exchanges, credibility, um, difference, and reconstitution. Um, so reconstitution is uh, the fact of um, assuming that um, that someone, for instance, is uh, lacking something, is wanting to do something, uh, depending on what we know of this person. So here again, uh, so this is not a Goffman's concept, but it's a very Goffmanian-like concept anyway. Uh, here again, it happens in all our everyday interactions. Uh, I think in the book, I give the example of the, of the, the gift. When you are uh, making a, a present to someone, you are using all that you know of this person and try to imagine that they would like or not. Okay, so uh, sometimes you uh, uh, you know exactly what you want to buy uh, as a uh, gift. I don't know, someone who is collecting uh, dolls, you will offer them a doll. Um, but uh, in some other cases, you have to, to think a bit more and to uh, kind of make uh, deduction. Okay, so this person uh, is a boy. He likes to uh, 
party, he likes to go fishing, so I will offer him this kind of stuff, he will probably like it. Right? So reconstitution is in all our interaction, but it takes another level uh, with people diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and other dementias because these people are progressively uh, these people are progressively unable to um, communicate uh, in the usual way. So for instance, they have difficulty to talk or at least to find their words um, or to remember what just happened. Um, and um, then to maintain the interaction with them, their relatives and professionals around them uh, tend to try to reconstitute what would be an interaction with them uh, without the disease. Um, so I think the kind of paramount of this um, this tension around reconstitution is um, what I observed in nursing homes during um, during meals, uh, because uh, in nursing homes you have some residents who are unable to talk, so in, unable to and unable to communicate even with gestures, and um, so they are unable in a sense to give consent. And on the other hand. Uh, when professionals give them food, they can't, you know, just give them food like this. They have to ask for their consent. So it's kind of a paradox here. Uh, and what the professionals do is that they are kind of uh, interacting with these uh, patients as if they were not uh, ill, as if they were able to communicate. So saying, hi. Uh, who are you? And you have no answer. Um, do you want to eat this today? And no answer, obviously. And okay, I hope you find it good. No, no answer, obviously. So um, they are reconstituting the interaction and reconstituting the person based on what they know they like um, to, to maintain an interaction order. Um, and what I, say, what I say, sometimes they use what they know uh, this person like. Uh, it's very obvious with some activities, uh, like um, I observed several times that for uh, residents in nursing homes who are not, so women residents who are not able to communicate anymore, but used to be very, uh, to, to take care about how they look like, uh, they are often put in some uh, uh, makeup, uh, activities. So they are put some some makeup by uh, professionals or nail polish or, or all these things. Um, and here again, it's the typical case of reconstitution because we use what we know of these residents. So they used to, to wear makeup and to take care of their appearances. Plus they are women, so there is the, the stereotype in addition. And so let's try to make an activity where they can you know, be put makeup uh, and this is a form of reconstitution because uh, faced with the impossibility to know what they want to do, um, professionals have to reconstitute something to, 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 to organize something. You know? So this is what I mean by reconstitution. And here again, along with the disease, along with the symptoms, um, patients are more and more uh, 
experiencing the everyday interactions of raw reconstitution. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I didn't think about that. Um, Yeah. So before we wrap up, um, what surprised you the most about your research process and your findings? Mm. Well, it's something I I complained a lot about uh, along with the book, and I hope it has not been misinterpreted. Uh, It is that uh, um, investigating the world of uh, dementia, Alzheimer's, is very is very uh, hard and very uh, it's it's kind of a dark uh, world. Um, but in somewhat in contradiction, there is a lot, lot, a lot of um, advertising about uh, values, uh, about especially humanist values uh, in this area. So uh, there is a lot of uh, for instance, in hospitals or in nursing homes, there is a lot of posters about how uh, residents should be uh, respected, how we should maintain their dignity, how they are humans, how they should be taken care of. And we are kind of constantly uh, exposed to this very uh, humanist uh, narrative. Um, and I, I think um, basically we it's something uh, in our societies most people agree with that you know like patients should be uh, uh, treated with dignity and humanity etc um, and then in contradiction um, when you are observing in detail um, for instance the work of health professionals uh, then you realize so it's very hard to know how to do that you know how to um, um, treat uh, someone according to these values with the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. With the example I used before, uh, giving food in nursing homes to people who can't talk and can't give sign of consent. So uh, it's very nice to see, oh, we have to respect the residents, but then you are in front of a resident that you have to give food to because it's important and that can't give consent, and it's important. Consent is important too. So in terms of values, you see it's a, it's a mess. Um, and and I, I found it very, very striking, you know, this discrepancy between uh, all these discourses about values and, and then everyday life, and, and people are kind of try to do what, what they can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time today. And my final question for you is, what are you working on now or next? So uh, after after this project on Alzheimer's disease, I uh, started a project on utopias, uh, utopian literature, more exactly. Uh, And I I said that because it's somewhat related that this fieldwork was so difficult to me that I couldn't do any, uh, and and I'm a qualitative sociologist, so doing interviews, doing observation, it's my thing. But I couldn't do anything for two years after that, two years and almost three years. So I started a project in the sociology of literature, focusing on utopian studies. And uh, since two years, I could resume uh, my research in mental health. Uh, and I'm now working uh, on a project uh, that deals with the um, the uh, uh, rise of behavioral addictions 
uh, in North America and Australia. So by behavioral addictions, I uh, mean uh, addiction to, to work, to sport, to sex, uh, to all, 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 to anything that is not a substance. And I'm focusing on researching uh, sex addiction right now, especially understanding how this category diffused worldwide in the last decades and why, what is the motivations for uh, a lot of different social groups to use this category to uh, define uh, some problems with sexuality. So this is my new area of research. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. I'm excited to see what comes out of those research um, projects. But again, this has been an interview uh, with Dr. Baptiste Brossard, author of Forgetting Items, The Social Experience of Alzheimer's Disease. Baptiste, I want to thank you again for being on the show today. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Yes, me too. Thank you for having me. Thank you.